Welcome to OnScript's Biblical World, a podcast exploring the history, archaeology, geography, and cultures of the Bible. Visit us at onscript.study slash biblicalworld. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Biblical World Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from the road. I'm in Chicago at the moment, not in Vancouver at Regent College where I normally am. Uh, so I'm recording this directly into my laptop, hence the audio quality. Uh, but let's get on to the episode. I hope you enjoy this one. Uh, we're looking at giants in their ancient Near Eastern context. We did another episode on giants on April 6th in 2022. Uh, that was called Geography of Judges Part 2, the giants episode. So if you want more on giants in the Old Testament, you can go there. It's a fascinating subject, so I hope you enjoy this. Hello, OnScript Biblical World listeners. It is good to be back today. Uh, we're going to be talking about giants again. I am Kyle Keimer, and I'm joined by my co-host, Chris McKinney. Chris, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, Kyle. I'm excited to talk about giants today. I know. Me too. I mean, Willie Mays, um, you know, Barry Bonds, these are some of the, the greats. Kyle, that, that's that's not the kind of giants that we're talking about. Oh, although the giants oh. that we are talking about may have juiced. So, oh, so you're talking like like the 1986 giant or was 85 giants the Super Bowl like Phil Simms? No, the, no, uh, no, 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 uh, not not those giants, not mm. those giants. Kyle, in case you forgot, this is a podcast about the biblical world, not 80s and 90s uh, sports. Um, yeah. As much as I love those th- those eras, um, although you know early 90s is really a place in my heart with the Cowboys. Uh, but what we're looking at today is not sports trivia, um, but I think I know it. I think I giants, know it. giants, giants in the in Bible. their ancient Near Eastern context yes. in the Bible. Nailed yeah. it. Nailed it. And. In fact, when we talk about the giants in the Bible, there, there's mention in a few places, and we actually had another episode where we looked at this in the context of our series on Judges, geography in, in Judges, and I think I hinted towards the end of that episode that there was some more meat on the large bones <laughs> of, uh, of, of this discussion um, that we would like to delve into a bit deeper. And so I'm giving this a title. I'm calling this Gigantomachy, uh, Biblical Giants in Their Ancient Near Eastern Background. And if you don't know what that first word is, Gigantomachy, that means you, like me, did not grow up with Greek mythology, because Giants aren't just a big deal in the biblical text, they're a big deal in the wider mythology that we read throughout the Mediterranean, and there's two big ones, Gigantomachy and Titanomachy. That's the giants and the titans, and that's actually where we get those terms, which, to bring back Kyle's point, uh, NFL teams have uh, exploited and used for their, uh, for their logos. Um, but these are big events in Greek mythology, but they weren't just only associated with Greek mythology. We see elements of this same idea um, in Mesopotamian literature, in uh, some of the Hittite literature. We have these very large beings. Um, and so what we want to do today is not go into all the ins and outs of it, but try and make sense of some elements that we see in the biblical story that go beyond just that section in Judges 1. And so this might be a kind of a, a rabbit trail from our series on geography and Judges. 
giants related somewhat to geography and judges. Good. Well, I am, I am looking forward to what you've got. And I know the first thing you wanted to talk about was this really interesting quote from Josephus that I, I wasn't aware of, but um, why don't you um, kick us off here? Yeah, yeah. I, I, in fact, there was a, a very interesting um, article put out in Bar Biblical Archaeology Review uh, back, and I think it was fall 2021, and we can put the link in the in the description. Uh, and it was called something like Giants in the Field. I can't remember the exact name, uh, but what they had is a really nice fossil of a uh, of, of an ancient um, elephant, and the suggestion was that. Part of the the tradition, part of the idea of why the ancients thought there were uh, were giants that had been of old antiquity, of hoary antiquity, as the saying goes, is because they would regularly encounter these bones or, or fossils, as we would call them today, that they couldn't explain, that were very very large, and if you look at a uh, an elephant, um, it has the appearance of uh, of more or less like a deformed human skull, except very, very large, and in the center, it has a hole. Uh, and in fact, this is one of the main theories as to where the cyclops, or the cyclopedes, uh, came from, the great, you know, the, these great characters, mythical characters from Greek mythology, from uh, the Odyssey. Uh, they were the builders of the Mycenaean Wall and, and Mycenae. In fact, uh, this gets even uh, taken over into what we see in uh, biblical archaeology, where walls get called the Cyclopean Wall because the walls are so huge, they could only imagine that uh, someone who was a cyclops, this massive either son of Poseidon or son of Uranus, could lift up and, 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 and build. And so I actually think that in terms of that tradition, it makes a lot of sense once you see this, uh, once you see these, these remains. And so it's just kind of an interesting thing to think about, that people have always been able to encounter fossils, and without the ability of, of necessarily knowing where, where those would have come from, conjectured on them being mythical creatures and or uh, and or giants. Now, that's a, a theory that I think has uh, a lot to it, but we even have a quote where this seems to be confirmed in Josephus, which is what Kyle was alluding to. I want to read that quote, and what's so interesting about it is that it relates directly to the text that we covered in our uh, last episode on uh, geography in, in, in Judges, which is the story of the Judahites going up against, or I should say Caleb and his, uh, uh, and his, and his men going up against the giants who lived in Hebron. It says, For which reason they removed their camp to Hebron, and when they had taken it, they slew all the inhabitants. They were till then left the race of giants, who had bodies so large and countenances so entirely different from other men, that they were surprising to the sight and terrible to the hearing. Now, to this point, it's more or less just Josephus, you might say, waxing eloquent about you know uh, giants of the past and kind of these larger traditions that uh, even his readers, uh, which are uh, Romans, uh, would have would have uh, would have thought because they too inherited the tradition 
of, of Greek mythology, which has a lot to say about titans and giants. Uh, but this next line is very important because it shows that they themselves were looking for proof or were inspired by the proof of these fossils. It says, the bones of these men were still shown to this very day, unlike to any credible relations to other men. And so he show, he's saying there both that there are very large bones, which we would call, again, fossilized uh, remains, but also that they're weird-looking. Um, it doesn't really say it's because they're so big or if they're kind of unique-looking. Now, if we fast-forward to uh, the early uh, 20th century, in the, in the Mandate period in, uh, in, in Palestine in the 1930s, uh, there was an expedition, or I should say, someone dug a well in their house in Bethlehem, and they actually uncovered in the digging of this well fossil remains of, 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 uh, of, of elephants that had gone extinct, and which shows that they're relatively high on uh, the surface and able for just in the everyday goings of life, whether you're digging a cistern, whether you're digging a well, whether you have... Um, a part of a cliff that was exposed, that these types of fossils could and would have been seen by, uh, by the ancients, which may have given rise uh, to at least part of, these, uh, part of these traditions. Now, if we go back to our last uh, discussion, we also made the point uh, with recent archaeological uh, work done by uh, Aaron Mayer at Telesafi Gath, where there's a very large and wide wall uh, which was suggested to be um, the length, or the you know, if if giant if a Goliath were to have laid down, uh, he could it would be the same length as the wall of Gath. And then Ron Hindle has recently written something on uh, the Middle Bronze Age massive walls as being part of the tradition of who could have built these large structures, and they must have been very very large. Now, what I want to to come across and maybe head off here right at the pass is to say, I think that uh, all these things can can work. In other words, it can be that you have fossils that people would uncover and they would wonder, like, where did they come from? And it can be that, that people living long after these large uh, fortifications were constructed. Uh, they would imagine uh, large figures of ancient past who 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 built those. But it could also be uh, that there really were very very large individuals that uh, we have um, in in ancient times. And so they don't necessarily discount one or the other. But we can look at these different uh, uh, types of evidence and see that regardless of which uh, route or path or combination one wants to take, that the biblical writers, much like the writers of Greek mythology and the writers of religious myth that we see in Mesopotamia and the wider Mediterranean, they were fascinated by these large characters. And so what I'd like to do today is think about uh, kind of a development of of what the, the biblical text actually says, um, and how it can be localized geographically. And I, I think that's going to be our main point. Uh, unfortunately, un until now, and despite many examples uh, of this uh, that are photoshopped very poorly online, there are no uh, skulls the size of my house. Uh, there are no, um, to my knowledge, um, uh, large examples of, of, of bones that exist of, of, of giants. Uh, and yet we do, as we've said, have archaeological remains of, of fossils and very large walls that may, may be part of this background. 
I think, uh, Chris, and I'll just add, I think it's really um, interesting, but I just normal testament to humans. I mean, they were trying, you know, biblical authors or, you know, people that, that had these traditions are trying to make sense of what they're seeing in the same way that we do that today. Now, the main difference is that, obviously, our ability to observe the natural world has improved over time. We have microscopes, satellites, telescopes, these things. We can see things in a different way than they could back then, but we're basically doing the same thing. We're still trying to observe and make sense of what we see. People in the future are going to do the same thing. They're going to look back at us and say, oh, they really missed the mark. They just didn't understand. Well, you know what? We're, we're doing the best we can right now, the same as they were. So I think... In, I think it might be common for some some biblical scholars, and I think maybe in the popular world as well, to look at some of the biblical stories and say, ah, that's just nonsense. It's completely made up. It's all quote unquote myth. Well, it you know let's let's peel it back a second and say you know they're making sense of things the best they can, and they're describing them in a way that is entirely accurate and you know kind of consistent with other cultures at that time period as well, and so. We, we can't be so quick to condemn or to be um, kind of all haughty about these things. So I think that's a, yeah, I think it's just a really important point to draw out because it's the same process that we're still doing today. I think it's a really good point. And if, if I just fast forward us beyond the question of historicity, archaeological evidence for whether or not this is real or not, um, I, I liked one of the, one of my favorite things, um, J.R.R. Tolkien always would say is when he was criticized for uh, writing about dragons, he'd say, I like dragons, and most of the people I write about or write to also like dragons, so we're going to talk about them because it makes the story much more interesting whether we're talking about dragons or talking about uh, talking about giants. And, and I think one of the things that we try to balance here um, when we talk about biblical archaeology and the mixing of um, of biblical big stories uh, with other big stories that we have in the wider ancient Near East is to focus on the power of what the story is actually trying to uh, to convey. And when we're talking about big stories, what's bigger than the giants? In fact, um, this is a, a, I would say, a very popular topic today, uh, becoming much more po- uh, popular. There's books like Unseen Realm and, and, and things like that by Mike Heiser and others that uh, there's even new monographs written on the sons of God and and, and the way that they're interpreted from from Genesis six. And we're not going to get into all the all the, the the ins and outs of how that works. But we what we do want to show is that it's a big part of the biblical tradition, and we're going to get into some avenues as to how this actually develops. Our main focus is really going to be on the Philistines and how they relate to the giants. But at the end, then we're going to take a step back and see there's a a kind of a logical narrative progression from Genesis 6 and to getting us to the Philistines. But let's start by uh, looking at our text that we talked about last time. Judges 1, it talks about how Judah went um, against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron and defeated Sheshai, Ahiman, and Talmai. We learn from other texts that these are the giants who live in the vicinity of Hebron. Now, one of our most informative texts is Deuteronomy chapter 2, and we have this long kind of parenthetical comment when uh, Moses and the Israelites are, they've crossed over into Transjordan, and they're about to encounter 
the Amorites, and they're about to have to make a decision about what to do with the Moabites and the Ammonites. And we're, we're basically given this laundry list of giant groups that lived in different parts of the land of Canaan uh, that have been since displaced, uh, although some of that remnant remains. It says, For I will not give the land of the Ammonites to you as a possession, because I have given it to the descendants of Lot. It also is usually reckoned as a land of Rephaim. Rephaim is a term for giants. Uh, In fact, the Greek text usually translates this as gigantes, uh, the word for giants. The Rephaim formerly inhabited it, although the Ammonites called them the Zamzumim. So they have a, a different name for the giants. And they were as strong and numerous people, as tall as the Anakim, which is yet another name for these giants. But Yahweh destroyed them before the Ammonites so that they could possess them and settle in their place. He did the same for the descendants of Esau, who lived in Seir, by destroying the Horim, yet another name probably for a giant clan, uh, so that they could dispossess them and settle in their place even to this day. And so what we have in this uh, text is a reference to the descendants of Lot, that's Moab and Ammon, uh, to the Edomites, uh, that would be Esau, um, going back into Genesis, how they had to encounter giant clans when they came into Transjordan. But then this last text, I would say, is, is the most important for our discussion. It says, As for the Avim, who lived in the settlements in the vicinity of Gaza, so the Avim would be a reference to the Rephaim, that is the giants, it says, the Kaftorim, who came from Kaftor, destroyed them and settled in their place. Now, we just threw a bunch of place names and um, <laughs> different designations for peoples at you, but the central thread of this is that we have one main name, the Rephaim, which is the biblical name for a giant that has multiple names depending on which per, which which group you ask. If you ask uh, an Edomite, an Ammonite, a Moabite, or a Philistine, who what they're called. Now the Kaftorim, Kaftor is the island of Crete, um, and so this would be just another designation for the Philistines. Indeed, we read in Genesis ten one. Uh, which is um, the, the table of nations. Actually, it's, it's a little bit later in Genesis 10, sorry. Um, we read about how the Kaftorim, from which the Philistines come, that this is a descendant of, uh, of Japheth. And so it, it explicitly connects the Philistines with the island of Kaftor, uh, which is Crete. Same thing can be read in Amos 9.7. It says, Are not like the, uh, did I not bring Israel up from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaftor? And his point being, just as I brought the Israelites out of the land of Egypt, so did I bring the Philistines to the land of Canaan from Kaftor. And so we see this, uh, really, this tradition really throughout the Bible. We see it in Jeremiah, we see it in, in other places. Now, this is where I think there's some really interesting things to, to get into, and we could, we could take this a couple different directions. The most important element, the most important passage for this, is going to be Joshua chapter 13, which to me is another key passage in providing what I think is an authentic date for the Exodus and the conquest, because what, it's, what it shows is as Joshua has completed the conquest, 
it says, this is the land that still remains, all the regions of the Philistines. And so because we know that the Philistines only arrived on the coast uh, at the earliest in the late 13th century, beginning of the 12th century, this this particular passage would definitely go seem to go against what was a so-called early date or 15th century date for the conquest. And so then it goes on to describes these different rulers. It says there are five rulers of the Philistines, those of Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron. And then, most significantly, it connects them with the Avim. It says the regions of the Philistines are also connected with the Avim. Now, what I find to be particularly interesting here is that we have two um, different streams of people that are reflected in this text in Joshua 13. One is, let's call them the new uh, sea peoples on the block, uh, the new kids who arrive in Canaan 13th and 12th century, uh, early 12th century, but it also is aware of this other tradition of other peoples that are already there, the Avim, which we just read in Deuteronomy 2, are the giant clan, the giant group. Now that's really interesting when we fast forward to the more well-known texts, which are going to be in the book of Samuel, where we read about uh, perhaps the most famous big bad guy of the Old Testament, a gentleman named Goliath of Gath. What is Goliath? Um, Well, when we think about Goliath, Goliath is a what I think a combination of these two ideas, one that is quite new um, and one that is quite old. Um, in, in the newness, we see even his name. Um, his name is not uh, Semitic. It seems to be something that is uh, Indo-European, something that is brought from uh, the, My- the larger Mycenaean world, we see this same kind of uh, tradition in the kings of Gath, such as Achish, which is also a non-Semitic name. Uh, interestingly enough, in the excavations at Tel Asafi, led by Aaron Mayer, they excavated an inscription from right around the time period of, uh, of Goliath that, um, that has not the name Goliath, but uh, Alwat and Walat, which has the same kind of ending and all three of these names, Goliath or Goliath, Alwat, and Walat, they seem to not be Semitic names, which shows that they go back to a uh, an Indo-European name. That they're not something from uh, from Canaan itself, but they belong with the wider uh, tradition. Now, so his name um, is, you might say, uh, some, something imported, but his height. Uh, is very much something that the biblical authors are connecting with local giant clans living in the land of Canaan, which we can then again associate with the different types of archaeological evidence that we um, that we talked about before. Now, and Kyle, feel free to jump in and tell me I'm crazy. Um, <laughs> not not yet. Um, You're well, not yet. Not yet. I, I, I'm approaching that. Uh, I'm approaching, you know, crazy level, um, but but one of the I, I, I think, and maybe we should do something later on the story of David and Goliath, but one of the key things that's often missed in um, the, even the story of David and Goliath is that it's actually not about David and Goliath at all. Uh, the story is very much a, should be about da- uh, Goliath versus Saul. 
um, and the fact that we talk about it being connected with David uh, has much to say about who Saul was in the overall narrative, which he's trembling in his tent, uh, uh, afraid to go and face uh, the, 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 the Philistine. We know about Saul as being from his shoulders upward, taller than all of the rest of the people, which is why I like to call him to my kids, Saul the Tall. Um, And so he's supposed to be the one as Israel's king to step up to the plate and fight Goliath. Now, the biggest issue, though, is no one really would want to face a giant who's nine foot nine. Uh, I mean, you're talking about something, which is the traditional interpretation of how we understand six cubits in a span in the Masoretic text of 1 Samuel 17. Nine foot nine uh, is, if, if, you don't, uh, if you don't know, three inches off a 10-foot basketball rim. It's, it's very, very tall and beyond what we would consider to be uh, normal uh, in the way things go. Now, I always like to say also, no one um, uh, measured him. <laughs> no one broke out their, you know, their draft footage tape and said, are we going to measure him with his shoes or without his shoes? Although um, they would have the problem that they would have to measure him without his head at the end when he was lying on his back. Uh, but no one, no one really, you know, they're, they're just giving you an estimate and probably an, uh, something that's a bit hyperbolic uh, by the nature of this epic text. Um, but we do actually have more evidence from the textual critical record from the Septuagint. In the Septuagint, instead of reading six cubits in a span, as it says in the Hebrew, it reads four cubits in a span. And it really depends on how you actually do a cubit. Or, um, but according to traditional view, this would make uh, Goliath somewhere in the neighborhood of 6'8". Uh, so he would be something like uh, LeBron James in, in terms of his overall height, if that's meant to be exactly accurate, like draft tape before he's going to be drafted by the... Uh, you know, by the Gittite uh, Giants. You know, that's a good name for a basketball team from from Gath. Um, or is competing against the Gaza Avim. So. <laughs> the Gaza Avim, I like that. I like that. Um, so I, I would say in this particular instance, you could argue for a more realistic view uh, from the Bible about what a giant's actual height is that is not outside of the realm of of, of human uh, experience, which would be uh, in the mid six feet. But again, even with that, the point being that they didn't have a chance or even think that they would measure him. I mean, I don't know about you, Kyle, but my kids on a monthly basis like to line up uh, by our pantry door and I write their height. I don't know. Maybe they were doing this in their houses in Philistia. You have to tell Aaron to keep um, looking at Safi. Maybe he'll find the, uh, <laughs> the, the growth marks there. <laughs> That's right. Um, but the, the point being is I, I think this is another instance where we can become so um, in pursuit of like a literal interpretation of, of, of the text and like trying to prove it through archaeology and history that we miss, like, why would they even care exactly how tall he was? And they're just kind of giving you uh, an estimate based upon, you know, what you would, what you would think. And, um, and, and that's where I think something like um, Aaron Mayer and Jeff Chadwick's recent suggestion to go off of the walls of Gath, like, you know, to say that Goliath was as, was as tall as the, the, the walls of Gath are wide is a very interesting suggestion. 
in any case, uh, poor Goliath um, doesn't survive. Well, look, here, Chris, let me jump in with one quick thing. Just, uh, you know, with the whole number thing, not only in the biblical text, but in the ancient world as well, I mean, we, we can't just read them in a literal way, most of them. I mean, there are some that, yeah, we should read that way, but there are many that we should not read that way. And so I think that is definitely an important point that you made, that that we you know, we can't just assume, yeah, that... that you know, some Israeli soldier walked, or Israelite soldier walked up after Goliath was dead and measured a tape against him. Like, oh, there, that's how long he was. Write it down, guys. Um, you know, so there's, there's definitely more going on. His, his retract, his retractable cubit, his retractable cubit tape that he kept on his, that he kept on his belt. <laughs> um, you know, I think that's, I think that's a great point, and I think most people would acknowledge that. You know, when they, when they really think about the narrative. Um, well, Goliath is not our only giant that we have from uh, the vicinity of Gath. We actually have uh, a number of them, and there's uh, a text in, uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 21 that mentions a few more. And this is a kind of a—the um, end of the book of Samuel brings together different strands of stories, and it's kind of a collection there at the end, and this fits in there. We actually read about four giants. They're called the sons of Anak. Uh, these would be Avim, Rephaim from the from the other texts that are defeated. Um, we read about Avishai. This would be David's um, David's nephew, one of the three of uh, brother of Joab and Azahel. He defeated uh, a giant who was trying to kill David. We also read about how another one of David's mighty men, Sib- Sibakai the Hushathite, one of the few references to the place of Husha which is just to the west of Bethlehem, how he defeated a giant named Saf, or Sippai, who was from probably this place called Gob, uh, which hasn't been identified with certainty. In fact, I have a, uh, an article coming out that tries to identify this place with, of Gob, and I uh, hone in on a few places around Gath. We also read another one about Elchanan, the son of Yair of Bethlehem, who killed, uh, and this is a bit of a controversial one, either Goliath the Gittite or his brother. Um, now, of course, if he kills Goliath the Gittite, you have the issue that, you know, David's supposed to have done that. Um, but there's all kinds of textual critical issues here. Um, and again, probably what's being referred to is Elhanan killing one of the giants. In this case, was also at the place of Gob. And then finally, we read about Jonathan, the son of Shimea, um, who was another one of David's nephews, who killed a giant who had six digits on his hands and feet, and this happened at Gath also. Now, these, in a, in a, in a, in a vacuum, are very interesting stories. They're very you know, kind of like snippets um, of these battles that happen between David's men and these giants. But if you think about the the geographical layer of this, it's rather interesting, because what you actually have are, are almost all of these are members of David's wider family or members of David's warrior bands who are fighting um, these, these giants around the city of Gath, and they're all from Bethlehem. And so what you actually have is a kind of back and forth in a fairly small area. I mean, Bethlehem and, uh, and Gath are not that far from one another. We're talking about something like 15 miles. And so this is showing a, a, local, a local conflict 
between the enemies of the Judahites, who are localized in, in David's hometown, and the biggest, baddest city around, the city of Gath. And so what we see then is the amplification of these people as, as giants, as big people, as big warriors, that they're able to defeat. Uh, and besides, uh, besides the archaeological evidence of seeing, uh, of seeing the walls of Gath, another interesting find is actually an inscription that was found on a storage jar from, uh, from Telesafi, which has the name Rafa on it. Uh, Aaron Mayer also has a, a very nice article on this that talks about the Rephaim in relationship to this inscription, and even suggests that maybe this was uh, even a clan name uh, around here. And, and once again, when we look at this, um, when we look at this evidence, we see that um, the added layer of the local dynamic of Bethlehem and its and its up and coming ruler David with his mighty men with Gath the biggest city around and its ruling class with its warrior class uh, with its weaponry perhaps um, which you know we even we could talk about that with Goliath as uh, the description of this being kind of a combination of local weaponry with imported rep weaponry from Mycenae we're seeing kind of a dynamic of the authors castigating their enemies and saying they're large and they're powerful and they're strong, and of course they're heroic for defeating them. Now, in the way that that's telling a story, it's not doesn't necessarily mean that they weren't big and they weren't strong. Um, but if we if we use Goliath as uh, a, as a key there, we can see that it seems to be within the realm of of uh, human height. Uh, and, and it, which is our only, to my knowledge, description of how tall people were, with the possible exception of Og, which we're going to talk about in just a minute. Yeah, you know, one thing I'll add, Chris, and I think this is such an interesting observation, that again, the, the geography of how it's factoring in here, I mean, we have uh, several other narrative stories about this connection between you know, Gath, Philistines, and Bethlehem, because we know that the Philistines come up and in the, the valley kind of a, of Rephaim are turned back. We also um, know that according to the book of Samuel, that the Philistines apparently had a garrison at Bethlehem for a little while. I mean, this is just traffic back and forth through the Elah Valley, up the ridge route, and it makes a lot of sense then that you do have stories that are arising out of this local conflict because this is this is one of the main ways from the coast into the hill country and if the bible is you know accurately preserving the conflict or the, the interactions of the philistines and israelites early on which i i would say it is so you see the philistines keep trying to take these main routes into different parts of the hill country sometimes there's success other times there's not but this this one in particular seems to be a route that they keep coming back to um, for some reason. Yeah, I, I agree. And what I find really fascinating about it is the story of David and Goliath is probably the most epic and well-known story in the Hebrew Bible. Um, I th I mean, maybe the crossing of the Sea of Reeds is, is comparable, um, but I think if you just asked uh, anyone on the street, you know, what's a story from the Bible that you would know, uh, David and Goliath is going to be right up there. And what is so fascinating about it is it's epic, but as we've seen, it's it's very localized. It's it's not the stakes in the story aren't that big if we're thinking about world history. It's 
who will have access uh, to this small uh, route, you know, between the Philistines and the Judahites in, in, in the Central Hills, and who will have, um, you know, predominancy over this, this small area. And it wasn't even decisive, <laughs> because we know that it continued on. That's what, kind of what's happening throughout the rest of, of Samuel. But I, I think that that's what I actually really like about the story and love about the story is, is it has that real geopolitical, uh, real heroic quality that I think um, is a sign of its uh, of not only its epic storytelling, but you know of, of a real space and time. And so, with that, then let's take a step further back and try and place these Philistines in their wider context, and uh, these Philistine giants in their wider context. And what I what I do there is is I, I I'm going to put my chips on the table and say um, the 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 giants that we have in the Bible. Um, they come from Genesis 6, 1 through 4. I, I and I, I think Kyle is as well, that this is a, a, a text that we have the sons of God, which would be part of the, the so-called divine council, uh, that go and uh, that go and they, they sleep with human women. It says they find them attractive, and they produce a race of, uh, of giants uh, on the earth, which are at least partially destroyed in the flood of Genesis 6 through 9. But we also read um, after this that Nimrod, uh, in Genesis chapter 10, he becomes a mighty man on earth, which is the same word that we read in Genesis, t- Genesis uh, 6, and uh, it, gets, it gets translated as such in, uh, in Genesis 10. And so I would actually, and not everyone would agree with me on that, see Nimrod as a character connected with this these groups who are hostile to God's overall plan. And so the sons of God being, um, you know, these angelic divine beings, um, they start this whole process, or I should say that the second iteration after the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. And then we have Nimrod being the third, and the Tower of Babel being a result of, 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 of that, what that rebellion means. Now, if we skip ahead... Uh, so that's maybe like the cosmic story. The the person of Nimrod, um, and I would say even the Tower of Babel episode is a second element um, in this in this overall conflict. But if we if we skip ahead outside of, of of Genesis, which is very much dealing with the wider cosmic story of how the people of Israel come to be, which is you know Genesis twelve, th- we, we we encounter the giants once more only when we get. Moses and the Israelites coming into the land of Canaan in the book of Numbers, in Numbers chapter 21, we read about Og, king of Bashan, who is located on the edge of uh, the land of, of, of promise, and he becomes one of the people that the Israelites will defeat during the conquest. Now, this is a very interesting um, narrative for a number of different reasons. But one is that the, this is actually reflected also in texts from Ugarit. Uh, there's a, a, a text called the, the Snake Charmers text, where it talks about the Rafa, which seems to be the same term as the Rephaim, who are at Ashtarot and Edri. This is a text that dates to the 14th or 13th century BC. It's clearly referring to the area of Transjordan, and it makes reference to the same exact towns 
the Bible does, in connection with Og, king of Bashan, the last Rephaim. And so what exactly this giant was, how big he was, uh, whether it is meant to be understood as uh, you know, inspired by big tombs that were later, um, you know, later understood to be large giants, and that's part of this larger debate. It's, we'll leave that on the side and say it's interesting that we see a geographical comparison once more between the uh, text in Ugarit and the text in the Bible. And so Moses defeats Og, king of Bashan, um, and then the next narrative we, we read is, the, is what we talked about in our last section, which is the sons of the Anakim, or the sons of Anak in Hebron. Caleb is the one in Joshua who defeats them. These would be the local Canaanites uh, who are defeated. And then we finally come to what we just talked about, which are Goliath and the sons of Anak, these four giants who live along the coast, who are defeated by David and his uh, David and his men. And so what we then see is a clear uh, geographical connection between uh, the defeated Rephaim in the area of Bashan, which, by the way, has very, very large dolmen fields, very, very large uh, tombs, even in Arabic, they're called um, the tombs of the sons of Israel, which seems to be some memory there. And then in Hebron, we have the massive Cyclopean walls. Uh, in the area of Gath, we now have the very large fortifications, as well as an inscription that says Rafa, as well as an inscription that is very similar to Goliath, all of which provide the overall context to this story which the Bible is uh, is talking about. Now, at the end of the day, can we say that uh, we can definitely say that there were really tall individuals that have some kind of spiritual background connected with them because of the sons of God and, and the Nephilim? Can we prove that archaeologically? The answer, obviously, is 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 no. But we do see that this is, uh, I would say, an authentic part of the way that the ancients were thinking about the their world and their story which is also reflected in the biblical text. And I would even add, to bring this full circle, um, we see this is not something that's localized to the Bible. It's something we see in Ugarit. It's something we see in the wider Greek world with uh, the stories we have in Greek mythology, which is what we started, gigantomachy. And these giants need to be defeated in the biblical story, it is uh, the flood, God himself, it's the Tower of Babel, God himself, it's Moses defeating Og, it's Caleb defeating the sons of Anak, and then the great hero David defeating Goliath uh, with his followers doing the same. And so the, the, the big baddie uh, always has to fall to the hero. Yeah, it's an interesting, uh, you know, uh, progression that you've, you've painted here, Chris, and, and drawn it out. And I'm trying to remember if... Um if it was maybe Ron Handel or Aaron Meyer in one of their papers about giants, also kind of um, build on the point that you know there's almost an apologetic element to this, particularly with David, because he's the culmination of this th- thread of giants running through the text. After him, they're not they're not there anymore, and so it's like this is you know another reason why David is a good king, a legitimate king, is that he took care of this this problem among with any other problem that kind of came up. Yeah, I think it's a great point, uh, and it reminded me of something I meant meant to say earlier, is not only do we have um, this interpretation, I think, being very legitimate based upon how we can read 
the biblical text against other literature and with archaeology. But this is precisely the way um, the Dead Sea Scrolls and where the Second Temple literature takes us, especially like a book like uh, like Enoch, First Enoch, where we where, where they're talking about the sons of God descending on top of Mount Hermon and producing this giant race that are going to have to be defeated, and then rearing their ugly heads once more to be defeated by other by other figures. And so I think this is something that not only we can see in the Old Testament in connection with David and Solomon, uh, but it's something that we can also see carry over into the New Testament. Uh, and uh, many scholars have pointed out that there seems to be some similarity between this and what you have even in the demonic possession that we have going on in the gospel narratives, although that remains a very much debated point and was probably an episode for an earlier date, for, for a later date. Well, Chris, this, is, this has been awesome, and I, I assume our uh, listeners have also enjoyed this. Um, I don't really have anything to add to this, except um, I'm glad that you clarified that we we're not talking about Barry Bonds, because I am an Oakland Athletics fan, so... I, I was not a Giants fan at all. So I, I can be a fan of this, though, and, and I enjoyed this. You can be a fan of this. Well, you know, I would say, to really, really bring this full circle, Aaron Judge, right now, from the New York Yankees, is on pace to beat Barry Bonds' home run record right now, and he is one of the tallest players ever to play. So maybe instead of LeBron James and Goliath, I should have said... Maybe Goliath was around the same height as Aaron Judge, who plays for not the Giants, but the Yankees. Um, and with that, we will close off our giant episode um, dealing with the Philistines and uh, Philistines and Giants. And in the future, we'll continue our series of geography and judges. And with that, we'll close and say, keep digging. You've been listening to On Script's Biblical World podcast. If you enjoy the show, please show your support by giving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can support the show by visiting onscript.study/donate. Until next time, keep digging.